welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Go over to Counterpunch. Go to the website. Go over to Counterpunch Plus. That is our subscriber section. That is where you can get your membership and become a supporter of Counterpunch. We've been doing this work for 30 years, just about, and uh, we plan on having at least another 30. So be a supporter, get on board, and we would greatly appreciate it. You're going to find a lot of contributions from a lot of different voices on the left. Many of those voices you've heard, many you have not. But one of the great things about Counterpunch is being a place where you will get a variety of left-wing perspectives and many different columnists with a wide variety of opinions. And one of those is with me here today. I'm very happy to speak with him. David Price is here to chat with us. David is the professor of anthropology at St. Martin's University in Washington State. And most importantly, for our conversation today. He is the author of the new book, The American Surveillance State, How the U.S. Spies on Dissent, that came out last year from Pluto Press. David Price, welcome to Counterpunch. Thank you much, Eric. It's very good to be here. We are so happy to have this conversation with you. Uh, Of course, you're a regular counterpuncher, so everybody already knows you. But just in case they don't, let's talk about your new book. Again, the title, The American Surveillance State, really, really important. So, David, let's begin here. Tell us about this book and tell us about how this book began, because I know in reading through it, it kind of didn't really begin where it ended up. So talk us through the process, how you began writing about anthropologists' contributions during a particular period of time, and how that expanded into this massive book. Yeah, almost 30 years ago, I started using the Freedom of Information Act uh, because of my interest in the history of anthropology. I I started off doing um, both archaeology and cultural anthropological work in the Middle East, And, you know, when I was living in Egypt, I kept hearing these stories about there being sort of overlapping interests between anthropologists and members of the CIA and things like that. So I I knew I knew there were all these rumors about these sort of interactions. Um, And so I just started about 30 years ago doing broad Freedom of Information Act requests where I would. Uh, request for the FBI, CIA, State Department on uh, anthropologists. And I thought what I was going to do was work on a book that would be about the Cold War uh, and American anthropologists doing things with the CIA. But I was I was surprised. What I found, um, what I first found were massive amounts of FBI surveillance of anthropologists in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, sometimes earlier, that mostly had to do with anthropologists being involved in uh, fights for racial equality. Anthropologists, since the earliest part of the 20th century, for all their mistakes and you know neocolonialism and all these, these other sort of issues, have, have always been very clear about race. They've always been clear that race is a social construction uh, and have been involved in campaigns fighting racism. And when anthropologists would do this during the Cold War, there were assumptions made by the FBI uh, that they must be communists if they're involved in these these campaigns. Some of them were. I mean, there was, of course, uh, a lot of progressive anthropologists, some who joined the, the Communist Party, especially in the 30s, um, and, and there were socialists, there were Marxists, you know, all of these sorts of things, but, but that didn't really matter. What mattered was activism. So 
Um, the first the first book that came out of this was a, a book called Threatening Anthropology that looked at the surveillance of anthropologists and how this impacted um, their activism. And, and it was really activism was was the key. And, you know, from there, I did a couple other books that looked at anthropologists in World War Two, one that finally got to looking at anthropologists during the Cold War. But really, one of the big takeaways, and it became the roots of the American surveillance book, the American surveillance state, uh, was looking at how activists, uh, particularly activists on the left, were targeted by either police uh, or mostly FBI surveillance because they were working on generally campaigns of equality or, or campaigns questioning militarism. And that that's where the chapters of this book sort of came together, was looking at a lot of individual files focusing on um, how progressives were being targeted for their for their politics. You know, David, you say at several points in this book that uh, in doing the research, I guess this is really just a multi-decade research project, but in doing this research, you, you said that it changed you and that it radicalized you in some ways. Can you speak to that a little bit and explain how the research and this process radicalized you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've always been a member of the left, of the progressive left, um, you know, certainly far left of the Democrat Party. Uh, but looking, finding so many records of how simple forms of activism, uh, questioning the inequality of capitalism, uh, essentially made outstanding members of our society enemies of the state, or at least um, suspect for engaging in this uh, in these activities. Uh, it really helped me become much more of an activist. It helped me understand the importance of activism rather than scaring me off, which could be, I suppose, a result one would have of, of looking at these sorts of files and finding, you know, finding these records of the FBI going through neighborhoods, talking to everyone's neighbors, going through workplaces, monitoring phone calls, uh, tracking cars, you know, that attend uh, progressive sort of meetings. Uh, it, it really had sort of the opposite effect to me. Uh, it, it did push me in a much more sort of radical direction. Uh, just, just from reading these sort of, you know, testimonials uh, and seeing how narrow uh, the band in terms of acceptable, um, acceptable dissent. So all of these things sort of definitely pushed me in that direction. And I'm sort of foreshadowing a little bit <clears throat> what I wanted to bring up towards the end of our conversation, but I guess I'll bring it up now as well, that part of the uh, interesting perspective of the book and of this of this project is that, as you say, you've been doing it for multiple decades now, and the the bulk of that time is the post 9-11 period, the Patriot Act and all of the other aspects of what we might call our contemporary surveillance state. So can you talk a little bit about how delving into this research amid 9-11 and the post 9-11 war on terror period, how that helped shape the narrative? Yeah, it, it has really uh, been the significant shift, of course, in our lifetime uh, in terms of the embracing of surveillance, uh, the post 9-11 world where you both have this national security state that was given permission uh, to go out of control in ways that we all knew that it would. Um, but along with that, the developments of corporate capitalism, uh, where our own metadata becomes this commodity. Uh, in ways that I think 
make Americans panic less than they panic about the police state monitoring them. Uh, but of course, the police state also has access to much of this information when it needs to. So yeah, the surveillance state in the last uh, 22 years uh, has grown by leaps and bounds. And and that that's part of the importance of 9-11 and the Patriot Act, which was, of course, passed very soon uh, afterwards. Uh, there's still lots of questions about where exactly did this language come from? It must have been sitting around to have a document, you know, waiting for an emergency, uh, a document of this size and specificity, uh, whose intent was largely to roll back the very reasonable restraints that were put in place after the church hearings, right? 1975, this post-Watergate era where we had this little bit of a, a view and actual inquiry uh, and some oversight coming out of, uh, in the Senate, the Frank Hurt uh, Church's committees, uh, you know, doing massive investigations into the abuses of the CIA and the FBI. Uh, and then in the House, uh, the Pike Committee, Otis Pike uh, report, which in many ways, it's a very small report, but I think his thesis was much more interesting uh, than the, the House Committee. Pike's, Pike's thesis was essentially uh, that the CIA is a covert arm of the presidency. It's not a rogue elephant, which was sort of the thesis of, 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 uh, of the church, uh, the church committee. Church did massive, you know, multi-volume, massive investigation. They unearthed all this stuff. But their conclusion was essentially that the CIA was off running around doing its own work, not that it was this covert arm of the presidency. And I very much buy it's a covert arm of the presidency, uh, you know, doing things off the books. Uh, historically, that's what it's been. It's interesting to think about that question now because it's almost it almost strikes me as you know somewhat convenient to frame the CIA as this like you know loose cannon agency kind of out there operating on its own rather than being very much kind of this integral institutional part of a much broader framework. Yeah, in the the early days of the. <laughs> the Trump administration, when we were all sitting back wide-eyed, you know, wondering uh, what this nut was going to do. Um, it was very strange that that he attacked the deep state, you know, what he was calling the deep state in these sort of ways. I think a, a more, a less, well, a differently reckless <laughs> Trump would have realized uh, that you know, while there, while while you know, there are deep parts of what I'll call the national security state that are out there with vested interest, and they're going to dig their heels in, and all of these sorts of things. The truth of the matter is, I think if Trump had played it very differently, instead of going to the CIA and yelling at them, which is really one of his first uh, interactions with them, I think if he'd had smarter people around him, it would have been much more dangerous. Um, he would have realized that there's this history of the CIA working for a president. Now, sometimes they undermine presidents. It's, it's not that they don't, you know, like any agency can, can do these things. But I mean, that, that takes us a little bit astray in terms of, you know, who's in control of the CIA? Are they running their own thing or is, is the president? I think historically the president has been very involved uh, in getting them to, uh, you know, to be, to be his own agency and, and do whatever covert operations uh, he wants. But back to the importance of this for, for post 9-11. Uh, the importance of this, I think, for post 9-11 is you have this incredible document, the Patriot Act, come along, 
and remove all of these barriers, barriers that prevent the FBI and CIA uh, from acting domestically in ways where they infiltrate uh, and undermine and act as provocateurs in legal political organizations here in the United States. And it's not that these rules were put up accidentally. These rules were put up because they were violating uh, people's civil rights. They were violating our rights to, to organize and engage in political activities, which may not be popular with the government. Uh, and it rolled back all of these rules after 9-11, and it was very effective. Um, there's a couple of early chapters in the book where I look at uh, American opinions about surveillance and Americans' skepticism about surveillance, going back into the you know bootleg periods of the early 20th century when the first phone taps uh, were done to catch bootleggers. There, there was early polling show that Americans were outraged at the concept that the police could listen in on a, a private conversation. And, and Americans really hold these. It, it goes up and down depending on what sort of scares are going on during World War II. You know, there was a, a, a much more acceptance that the someone might be listening in on a phone call. Uh, but really, in the end, uh, Americans have consistently uh, not liked these forms of surveillance. And that changed really quick after 9-11. Uh, we're back now to something closer to equilibrium where you have increasing numbers of people getting um, upset, both on the both on the left and right. And I think that's that's really good news uh, that people don't like to have government surveillance going on uh, in, in any sort of way. But, you know, our defenses are down. We're, uh, if you think about how shocked you were many years ago, the first time you, I don't know, for me, it's looking up an obscure bike part, uh, you know, an Italian, an Italian bike part. And then I go online and for weeks I get these ads looking at things and now we're numb to it. Now we just kind of roll our eyes and go on, but it, it freaks people out or it freaked people out the first time it happened. And now we're just sort of socialized into this acceptance. Well, you've preempted my question. So let's get right into that. You already mentioned it. So in the book, you talk about uh, surveillance and you talk, I mean, well, you talk about a number of different societies uh, historically, but the, the point being that surveillance is not unique to the United States or to Soviet Russia or anything. In fact, you make the argument that it, that surveillance in some ways is really fundamental to the very concept of a nation state uh, and that you have it throughout all of history. So can you explain why you suggest that surveillance, well, first, why you suggest surveillance is fundamental to all nation states? And then secondly, what you just mentioned, how do nation states attempt to socialize people to accept surveillance? Yeah, I take a distant uh, anthropological view, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna try and think about surveillance as something that's existed for seven thousand years or more, uh, and in many ways, um, you know, if you if you look at uh, the work of James Scott, right, who wrote this book, Seeing Like a State, that uh, he writes about ways that states view their populace, uh, and some of these have to do with things like standardization, right? It's through states that you start having standardization of measures, and these relate to taxation, they relate to control, they relate to all of these sorts of things. It's, it, it really is one of the functions of the states to make what Scott calls people legible, 
right? That you can see them, that you can know where they are, what they're doing, um, all of all of these sorts of things. So I think in that sort of philosophical view, um, all of these forms of you know things like uh, cladestal surveys, right? This is uh, you know what's what's going on on Jesus's birthday when when Joseph and Mary are are traveling. You have the empire is there and it wants to know how many people there are, and so everybody has to go in and be counted. You know these forms of basic surveillance, which of course are very different than the apps that we don't even know are on our phone, <laughs> put there by advertisers, I, I assume, uh, monitoring all of our buying habits, or if you use Gmail, right, it's monitoring, it's, it's getting the metadata meta out, out of your mail uh, that's all there. So um, it's a continuum, all, all of these things. And, and of course, all power, you know, large, aggressive, uh, nation states now have these incredible intelligence agencies, uh, which on the surface, you can, you can find all sorts of differences, say, between the American uh, intelligence agencies that are out there, or, you know, Mossad, or Savak, or, you know, the history of the KGB, or all these things. But these surface differences, to me, uh, I get very much into sort of an anthropological mode where I'm lumping more than splitting and seeing very much the same sort of mechanisms, um, the same sort of mechanisms going on. So uh, anthropologically speaking, yeah, the state and surveillance go very much hand in hand. But but here in our capitalist state, um, it is really interesting that in terms of consumer surveillance that's going on, uh, there are such great differences between us and Europe in terms of what's allowed, uh, just in terms of the internet and all of these sorts of things. And it is sort of this paradise or, uh, dystopia is more like it, uh, for laissez-faire capitalism, uh, to just, people really aren't worried about these forms where we'll, in order to save, you know, 6% on groceries, uh, we'll enter our our, our happy shopper number, uh, you know, into, which is usually our phone number, uh, into these databases, um, you know, which commodify <laughs> our engagement with the economy and make us very, very visible in, in all sorts of ways. Uh, and again, there's much more concern about when the state does it, uh, but when the corporations do it, there's just sort of this shrug and move on here in the States. One of the uh, uh, contrasts that you highlight in the book, I mean, there's many, but one that just stuck out to me as I was jotting down some notes was, you know, a comparison of some of the methods, methodologies, and actual even physical people uh, at the FBI versus a place like East Germany and the Stasi, for example, very different forms of surveillance, very different use of uh, intelligence officers, et cetera, et cetera. But there also are very clear commonalities, and you highlight some of those. You were just kind of alluding to some of them. Um, you know, similarly, we had in the United States during the Red Scare and during the McCarthy period, you see a lot of the tactics that the FBI uses. Can you contrast those with, say, what the Soviets were doing with ideas like Pavlik Marozov, the, you know, the story of the child who informs on his parents to the state for, you know, anti-communist activities and so forth. Can you contrast these two? And then I guess the real question there is, what do we take out of these differences? What conclusion can we draw 
about the differences between surveillance in a capitalist state like the U.S. and the surveillance that was all encompassing in a place like the Soviet Union. I would, of course, say there's some sort of continuum where the FBI practices, let's just take the 1950s, what was going on in the uh, in the United States and the tactics by by Stasi or the the KGB and KVD, right? These these sort of things. Um, you know, if you it depends on your level of focus. If you pull way back, you can find all sorts of similarities in terms of what what was going on. But the even notions, though, uh, the Soviets were far more aggressive in terms of you know, getting family members to betray each other and and things like that. It's not that things like that didn't happen here, but it was, it was far more aggressive. You know, Stasi took things, I think, to the most absurd uh, degree uh, that's out there. Um, You can, you know, if you read the literature on, uh, especially the literature that came out uh, post-unification when East Germany and, and West Germany were united, you know, probably the best, the best sign of an actual collapsed state is that its secret police files become public. I mean, that's when you know it's an end of an era. And and I don't want to say it was a collapse of a state or totally an end of an era, but that's sort of what happened for a couple of years around 1975, post-Watergate, where the Freedom of Information Act suddenly actually got powerful in ways that it hadn't been before. And we had these restraints and things that were going. It was a shift in terms of what happened. And when Reagan comes in, it just all goes away. The Freedom of Information Act uh, had all sorts of uh, constrictions that, that, that came on it. So I would, you know, I would say there's this, this great con- uh, continuum. And what we know from the un- post-unification of the Stasi records, it's incredible, uh, the crazy things they were doing. Things like uh, people who were not even very political uh, when they would finally get their files. And and one of the bad things that, well, one of the many bad things, uh, one of the bad things that Stasi did uh, when the collapse came is they destroyed a lot of the indexes so that you had files, but they weren't necessarily retrievable, which again, that's a pretty smart thing to do if you're, <laughs> uh, you know, if, if, if you're having to, to cover your tracks and so on. But so it took a long time is very disorganized things, but people would find these files and in them, there would literally be uh, in sealed plastic bags, you would find underwear uh, and other personal items. And the idea was that so that dogs at some point, at some future point, uh, dogs could be used to retrieve people for, for unknown incidents. Um, and of course, both agents, all, you know, all sides have this, we're going to collect everything for unknown incidents. Uh, one of the things uh, I read about in uh, the CIA's own classified journal, they have this, uh, well, it's classified and declassified, but it's a, a, they have an academic journal called Studies of Intelligence. And, you know, you can, you can Google it, you can read most issues, at least two thirds of it. Um, are unredacted. Uh, older, they're still older issues. Some are completely public. Some they still redact uh, things. But they're very much these academic articles in there. Uh, and I found uh, this great article in there that talked about. It's like the Office of Photo Reconnaissance, or it's not quite the right name, uh, that exists in the the CIA in, in a pre-internet age, right in the 1960s or 70s where they collected photographs of everything, 
they anyone they they told people like if you take a trip anywhere it could be in the u.s it could be abroad take pictures of everything and just give them to us but it could be useful later and this was this was sort of this philosophy within the cia that that they wanted to become the mind of america and, and so they just wanted to collect crap without any sort of particular use and we know from the snowden leaks right that this is still very much the ideology of the CIA and NSA is they're collecting everything on everyone all the time as much as they can because someday it might be useful uh, in some sort of way. And maybe the Snowden leaks are the best uh, best measure we have of how numb we've become, uh, how socialized we've become post 9-11. Uh, because the sort of revelations that happened 10 years ago uh, would have made a government fall if they'd happened 20 years earlier. Uh, but instead, people were freaked out for a little while. It caught their attention. It just sort of all went away. And there weren't any meaningful reforms or oversight that came out of this massive uh, surveillance net that we now, well, we knew before, but we had proof uh, that sort of this sort of stuff is going on. And just before we go to the break, I just wanted to make the comment, too, that uh, while the kinds of surveillance and other activities that we saw in the United States may at times seem a little bit more, I don't know what the word is, a little bit more hands-off than, say, the KGB's tactics or the Stasi's tactics, I think it is also a matter of perspective because, for instance, you know, COINTELPRO, we know how they targeted black activist groups, the Panthers and others as well, with direct frame jobs and 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 committing of crimes, setting people up, all kinds of things like that. So I think it's important to note just that in the United States, there's sort of shades of gray as well. And sometimes it is hands-off surveillance and sometimes it's direct intervention. Great point. That's absolutely true. Okay, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we have a lot more to talk about. The book, you can do it while you're listening to the music. Go get a copy. The American Surveillance State, How the U.S. Spies on Dissent. Get it wherever you get your books, preferably not from Amazon, but you do what you got to do. And we will talk to you on the other side of the break.
are back chatting with David Price. Again, the book, The American Surveillance State, How the U.S. Spies on Dissent, that came out last year from Pluto Press. Um, I guess it's been a number of months since it came out, David. This is overdue, our conversation here. So let's talk a little bit about technology. Because one of the things that also comes through in the book is sort of this, the the inextricable link between surveillance and the development of new technologies. Can you talk about how surveillance historically has been an impetus for some of the technological innovations that we see all around us? Yeah, I mean, technology uh, and surveillance go hand in hand, Uh, pretty much any new device that somebody comes up with that can record movements, can record sound, can record any of these things. Can uh, And when I say record movements, I don't necessarily mean things like GPS, you know, devices that are, that are doing, uh, you know, tracking in real time. Uh, I mean, things like the network that airlines use when we buy airplane tickets, which the FBI has always had access to. Uh, and has, you see records of this showing up of, uh, in the 1960s is really when the computer networks took off with that. But when they want to know where somebody is, they will do these sort of basic consultations, often without warrants. Often it's a very friendly sort of thing where the, the agencies will, will do it. So uh, the technology has everything to do with it. And we're, we're living in a world, of course, where the technological advancements, whether it's artificial intelligence or uh, just basic things with our cell phones, which are, of course, tracking devices uh, and if in the right or wrong hands. That's, of course, wrong hands where, uh, where they, bec- they work in these sorts of ways. Uh, so, yeah, with all of these sorts of technological developments, uh, there are shifts that happen. And in some sense, the way that I wrote the book, I made a decision to rather than always focus on the latest developments of technology, uh, to focus on how who is comes under surveillance, how it works, what they're looking for, and all of these things. And I made I made that as a choice for several reasons. The biggest one was. Um, you can't keep up with the technology. The, the, if, you, if you only focus on the technology, which is very important, uh, the sort of argument that you make, uh, if it's techno-specific, can come out of date. So instead of that, looking at, largely looking at that it's these activists, uh, it's people who are being activists for equality, activists in anti-militarization movements and things like that, uh, much of my argument is historical. A lot of the people I look at are in the 50s, 60s, 70s, some, some up, you know, to the, to the present day. Uh, but what I'm looking for is this pattern. Who is it that's under surveillance? How, how does it work? Um, and that's very much independent of the technology. Technology, of course, makes it easier. They don't have to go talk to your neighbors uh, to, to see what you're doing. Uh, we all make ourselves very visible. I mean, at the same time, I do address things like the Stingray um, technology. Stingrays are these uh, portable fake cell phone towers that if there's a protest um, that's that's going on, I, you know, you could assume uh, Trump, Trump prophesizing that, you know, he will he will be arrested, uh, this sort of thing. You can assume there are cell phone, uh, these Stingray things are being set up. And so they're, they basically, they exist on the back of a truck. It's a small, uh, small antenna. 
it goes up. And for a certain radius, um, the, the most common ones seem to work about a eight like New York City blocks. They can, they can function as the cell phone tower. So if you're in that area, you have a cell phone, the signal you're getting is really coming through this stingray and it has access to everything uh, while, while that's going on. So law enforcement, um, it's not just the FBI or Secret Service or someone like that that uses this. This is very common for police forces to use this, including small police forces. Um, it's not that you have to live in some sort of giant city that this, this stuff exists. So, I mean, I do talk about these sorts of things existing. And while, you know, you can take basic measures such as turn your cell phone off or leave it at home, um, in some sense, it's not that practical uh, if you're going if you're going to a protest where things change people are being in communication there's also things like the Pegasus program um, which is frightening right it's this Israeli based um, software that can hack any phone that it winds up on uh, and you know due to really excellent investigative journalist work we know about these sorts of programs that exist and in some sense, they're not surprising when we find out about them because, you know, as you say, the technology for this is very important. And anytime a new technology comes, there are going to be exploits that that they can be used for. So my approach is to mention what we know about the current technology. And it's, of course, very important for understanding this. Uh, but for me, the largest, most important thing is the political economy in which this this occurs. You know, who are the people that are that are identified? Even though I just mentioned, you know, Trump supporters, you know, will come under surveillance if they're going to protest Donald Trump or you know, being arrested. If if that does happen, you know, we will see. Uh, while while there are people on the right who come under surveillance, that isn't the historical pattern. Uh, they certainly don't come under surveillance anywhere near the way. Uh, that people on the left do, and this is what draws me. This this is what draws my interest in terms of looking at the surveillance state. And uh, just to that point, to finish the point on technology, one can only shudder to think how artificial intelligence will now be incorporated into the surveillance apparatus <laughs> once you have, uh, you know a computer able to review information and make determinations and do all sorts of things that adds another layer to all of this. It's been a concern for a long time. Um, like 20 years ago, um, there was a, a really interesting uh, 60 Minutes piece that was done on the National Security Agency, the NSA, looking at international phone calls, right? Which is this whole different category of surveillance and the legality of doing it. There are different legal issues and, and such. But this was 20 year old technology uh, looking at keywords that would show up. So you had very primitive uh, voice recognition software. And if you said certain words like bomb, right? You know, oh, that movie bombed at the box office. And, and there were cases where they, they looked at this, where people would use a word and then the surveillance net would drop on it. Uh, it would, you know, it would pop up and, and do this. Well, you know, I assume we've all played a little bit with the artificial technology uh, that's available on a commercial or free level uh, right now. And it's pretty sophisticated in terms of what it can do. 
And there's a general understanding if you read James Bamford, you know, who's done this incredible work looking at the National Security Agency, uh, that the NSA, in terms of the processors it has, in terms of the programming that it's done, is always several generations ahead of what the public has uh, that's out there. So, yeah, we can assume that if you take the information that we got from the Snowden leaks a decade ago, which I think really some of the most important information we got from that is that they're just collecting everything. <laughs> they're collecting who you're calling. They're collecting, you know, at a minimum, they're collecting what used to be called PIN numbers, who calls who uh, sort of information, uh, which mostly can be made sense of after the fact, right? That's what, that, that most of the surveillance that's out there is effective after the fact. You might find out who did something afterwards. But of course, the dream of the panopticon, the dream of all this is to have a predictive capability. Uh, and that's, you know, that's where you start getting into sort of the Philip K. Dick precog, you know, uh, is that where all of this is heading? And if artificial intelligence is good for something, and it is good for some things, it's good at pattern recognition. Um, that doesn't mean it's <laughs> it's good at at taking you know pattern recognitions of humans and figuring out oh this person is going to do this thing uh, so we better I don't know preemptively arrest them or uh, just as bad uh, start placing these people under surveillance because they fit these twelve criteria um, that we've put together but it seems rather obvious that some level of that is going on. And the more that art artificial intelligence grows, I think we can assume that that's, that's what's going to happen with it. It's so interesting to think about. And that actually leads me into uh, another, I guess you could say it's almost like a philosophical question that comes out of your book. You, you write a little bit about uh, the dossier and the idea of collecting information for dossiers. And it raises a number of very interesting questions, the most obvious, of course, being, you know, how information is collected on individuals down to the level of, you know, collecting their dirty underwear, as you were alluding to earlier. But there's another aspect that really got me thinking about it as I was reading through the book, and that is the idea of a kind of a manufacturing of truth, the idea that information gets into a dossier and it then becomes true irrespective of its actual objective truth. So because an FBI agent misinterpreted a particular thing and put it into a file 20 years ago, that then is transformed into a historical fact by virtue of the dossier then moving forward year after year after year. Can you talk about this process and from a philosophical level, why it's important to think about? Yeah, that that is certainly something you see when you you know, when you spend years reading these big fat FBI files, you see it again and again, that something appears in someone's file. It may be true. It might not be true. Uh, often it's simply rumor. Some neighbor will tell something or some reactionary aunt of the person or something like that. And it echoes. It will echo for decades because most of the entries in an FBI file, uh, there might be a long report, like a five, six page single space report about some incident that goes on. And then that report, five, six, 12 years later, if there, if there comes an interest in the subject of the file, um, 
someone will reread that and then they'll summarize it in increasing shorter ways. And they take these elements of it and it's like a game of telephone. And it's, it's really reification where you, you take this, this idea and it gets reduced to something and it just has this life of its own that continues. And I'm thinking of one case um, there was a, a anthropologist named Oscar Lewis. Oscar Lewis was uh, famous in the 1960s for coming up uh, with the idea of a culture of poverty, which uh, uh, Moynihan and others, you know, L became part of LBJ's vocabulary. Actually, talking talking about these things. And Oscar uh, Oscar Lewis was he was not a socialist. He was not a communist, um, but he'd been a student of Franz Boas, who was very important in terms of uh, fighting racism uh, in the United States. And during World War II, the first, the first incident, I mean, he was, he, was a, he was like a New Deal Democrat is what he was. And so during World War II, he was stationed at uh, some branch of the State Department that was uh, doing sort of propaganda work in Mexico. And he was driving from New York uh, <laughs> to cross over, uh, I think in Laredo, uh, to, to go into Mexico. And he does this stupid thing where he pulls up and he's in line with the cars to cross over at the border with the US, uh, you know, immigration control is there. And he realizes he has something he shouldn't have in his car. And so he backs up, he pulls out a line and tries to turn around. And of course they stop you. I mean, the best thing you can do in that situation is just grit your teeth and pretend like you're a secret agent or something. But what, what he had was uh, somebody had given, given him a, a book review that was in the Daily Worker or some, some communist publication like that. And so of, course, of course they tear his car apart after he did, did that. And the funny thing is, in his <laughs> in his FBI file, and again, he wasn't a communist. He didn't. I don't think he subscribed to the Daily Worker. It was something someone had given him. But what the FBI found and freaked out about was he was a trained opera singer, and he had uh, all this Wagner um, sheet music, or not sheet music, music with the lyrics and everything. You know, that, that was all this, and so he had German music during World War II. Never mind that he was Jewish. Uh, and they, the FBI wondered if maybe he was a secret Nazi or something, even though all the German that he had had musical notation and all of these sorts of things. And they didn't, they barely noted that he had this book review um, that had been circled and annotated in there uh, on the thing. But this started suspicion of him. And out of this suspicion, uh, the FBI maintained a lot of focus on him. And then when he just started writing about poverty, and again, he was doing this as a very mainstream Democrat, uh, focusing on, on poverty. And the poverty he was focusing on was outside the country in Mexico uh, doing this. And at some point, the FBI went so far in their obsession with him uh, that they would break into where he was living in Mexico years later and get a hold of his raw research data and look at it to see to see what was going on. Um, I think it's in his file uh, that uh, both uh, oh it's E. Howard Hunt shows up because he you know he worked out of Mexico for a while and things like that monitoring him and it really is this notion of like once the file starts. Um, it, it might die. I mean, there are a lot of people I would get their file and they're 12 pages long and it's really one page of any information. And then just this sort of short echo that, that dies, but there are lots of cases where 
rumors will show up in a file uh, and you'll find the rumors have grown from what it was originally 20 years later into this ongoing thing. It's like, we have to maintain a file and check every six months out of some small thing that started. So yeah, the file becomes very, very important. Obviously, there's one figure uh, who towers above the rest when talking about these kinds of issues, and that, of course, is J. Edgar Hoover. Now, I want to ask you a little bit of, to tell us a little bit about Hoover, but specifically, I mean, I think we all probably listening probably know all about J. Edgar Hoover, or at least the, the most important information. But I want you to help us understand why it's important that we see the development of the FBI and the development of FBI surveillance as something other than a reflection of Hoover himself. Because one of those myths about the FBI is that, well, here's this guy who takes over in the early part of the 20th century, and he basically just turns the whole thing into a reflection of himself with all of his paranoia and personal shortcomings and so forth. And the FBI is basically just a reflection of Hoover. So that is certainly an argument that some have made, whether tacitly or overtly. But you argue in the book that, in fact, Hoover really wasn't it wasn't about Hoover that he was just the guy who what you said let me see I wrote it down quote fulfilling a significant predetermined need of American capitalism so if it wasn't about Hoover then what exactly what role did Hoover play in filling this need for American capitalism Hoover was really the perfect monster for the job that the job was there the job was there uh, to police those who would get in the way of the outrages of American capitalism, which is really when he's, when he's spying on people who are fighting for racial equality, when he's spying on union organizers, when he's spying on people who are pushing uh, for greater egalitarian causes and not going after the mafia, uh, and, you know, corporate crimes and all of these things to anywhere near the same sort of levels that he's doing this, it becomes really clear. So, you know, I have a chapter in there uh, on J. Edgar Hoover, where I, I do look at the person and, and biography and, and it's, it, it does, it looks at it both ways. One is exactly what you said, which is the main thesis, that this was a job uh, that, that somebody was going to have. And if, you know, if Hoover had not been so good at it, and of course by good, I mean bad, if he had not been so good at it, uh, in the, you know, three decades of him, of him doing this more than three decades four four decades, I mean, he starts in the thirties and he, he ends right before Watergate, you know, arguably Watergate would not have been the same if he was there. Cause he was all about damage control and all of those sorts of things. Um, so, and, you know, in these decades uh, that, that Hoover's there, if he hadn't been so good at his job, we would have had four or five different directors come in and do these sorts of things. But he became so powerful. And that chapter that looks at Hoover, um, Alex Coburn, a couple of years before he died, um, wanted to do a counterpunch book of monsters. And there's one of the early counterpunch books you can find in the back where they would have ads. Uh, Alex was very much into, into uh, book covers, like he would get an idea for a, a book. There, there are several of these uh, where he would get somebody uh, to say they would write a book and they may, they may write it or not, but he would start designing the cover. And somewhere out there, um, there's, there's the cover for this. So uh, his idea was that you would take 
uh, have a counterpunch book where you had all these different chapters and you would you would have all these different monsters, you know, have one on Kissinger and, you know, whatever. So he asked me to write one on Hoover. And then the book, the book never came to be. So I reworked it uh, in, into this and in some sense had to had to I won't say tone it down, but sort of tone, you know, change the tone a little bit uh, in in terms of the monstrosity uh, that was that was Hoover. I think Hoover was the most powerful American of the 20th century. Um, I won't say he was the most powerful person on earth, but uh, people feared him in this way uh, that they they didn't fear other people because of the dossier, because he had so many files uh, that were out there. Uh, and there are various biographers of Hoover you can read who uh, make the argument that he was controlling presidents in all sorts of ways because of the information uh, that he that he had. And even though, to go back to the original point, he was this very powerful person who could weaponize this information in all sorts of ways. Uh, really the ways that, that he weaponized it uh, was in favor of the sort of market-driven capitalism that was, that was prevailing. And those who would get in the way came under uh, his lens of observation and, and surveillance. And harassment, as you you know, as you said, uh, COINTELPRO and and uh, many other many other instances uh, of the FBI going beyond simply watching people, but interfering in their lives. In thinking about Hoover as this sort of functionary of capitalism or guardian of American capitalism or something, I couldn't help but think of C. Wright Mills, you know, the power elite. It very much made me think of you know J. Edgar Hoover as the guardian of the power elite. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Uh, in the last few minutes that we have, David, I want to, I want to, well, I want to ask you about the American surveillance state, but in the context of the rest of the world, because when we talk about the American surveillance state, we're not simply talking about the United States, are we? Because China and Russia and the UAE and Saudi Arabia and, and Turkey and many other countries around the world have developed their own surveillance states to entrench their own powers, authoritarian you know, systems, what have you, depending on the situation. And many of those countries themselves depend upon the technology exported by U.S. corporations. So U.S. surveillance companies, U.S. technologies that are then exported around the world to help build other surveillance states. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the American surveillance state as something like a launching pad for other surveillance states? Yeah. Um, it It's sort of creepy what we know. And I assume there's, there's of course, more we don't know than we do know. I mean, that's, that doesn't, that doesn't really take rocket science, but, but even things like, for example, this Pegasus um, software, which I, I mentioned early, which is an Israeli company. Um, I don't know that it's they will sell it to everyone. Uh, they claim they won't. Uh, that there are only state certain state powers that they will will sell it to. Uh, so we know we know about things like that. There was a uh, NSA hacking toolkit that got leaked. I'm going to say maybe two three years ago, something like that. Uh, and it's really interesting to look at. And it, it has, in many ways, sort of the parts of this Pegasus uh, program. And there were some documents that, that uh, after that was uh, this, this NSA toolkit was leaked, 
um, hack, it's a hacking toolkit is, is what it is. Um, one of the things that, that came out of that is there were reports that this toolkit, while made for the U.S. and was only supposed to be used by the U.S., it was, there were elements of it that were, there were, you know, quote, friendly countries that were given access uh, to it. So again, a lot of this is in a black box, but if you look at historical context, if you look at, assume some sort of continuity, I would assume there are all sorts of hacking tools and hacking teams. We know actually quite a bit about, um, you know, China surveillance, whether it's the surveillance of its own activists or of, of everyone. I mean, they have incredible facial recognition um, software. They, they even developed things that were able to uh, not worry about uh, COVID masks and still be able to use the geometry of faces to, to you know, figure out who, who people were. Um, I think uh, in China, there is much more advanced use of cameras and things like that. In places like England, of course, they have more cameras than, uh, than anyone else per capita. So different, different countries are using these in different ways. There is some patron client stuff that's going on, um, that, that fits historical patterns that we know about. Uh, but other countries are developing their own uses, their own uh, techniques. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff you read about that's that's happening in China with social media and things, uh, it's sort of this black mirror sort of extension where uh, people's access to other parts of society can and have been limited uh, by the monitoring of what people are trying to do on, on social media. And my anthropological view is that there's this convergence of how states use these sorts of things. We might be a little slower to do these sorts of things, but whatever the next scare is when it comes along, uh, you can easily imagine these things very easily being being incorporated. And there, there's clear evidence that um, there's a socialization of acceptance of surveillance. It's very natural that's happening, where uh, someone in their 20s uh, is much more comfortable not even thinking about leaving the GPS on their phone on or other the con, there is because there's incredible convenience or the uh, these assistants of uh, you know the, the the quote assistants the electronic assistants people have uh, in their house whether it's Alexa or something like that um, talking into it there's a generational acceptance that's that's happening with it where it becomes the new surveillance normal in in all sorts of ways. Uh, and you add to that some sort of political fear, it makes it much easier to do these things. One, one thing to remember is that in uh, 2003, so it was about a year and a half, uh, two years after 9-11, there was the release of information of this new program called Total Information Awareness uh, that Rumsfeld and others were going to do in the United States people freaked out. It was the goal of total information awareness was to coordinate things like traffic camera information and credit card use and cell phone activity and just all of this stuff, like out of one of the Bourne movies or something like that, where you would have this, you know, cockpit where this person was sitting there and could track people in real time doing this stuff. And Americans said, absolutely not. It got shut down even before it started. Uh, 
but really all elements of, of that program later developed at, at other agencies. They, they made a mistake by, you know, a public a publicity mistake, I suppose, by giving it a scary name. They had a scary insignia, you know, with a big watchful eye and all this sort of stuff and, and people freaked out. But I think we're at a point where uh, the socialization and acceptance of surveillance, especially generationally, has gotten where this will be very easy to to do. Absolutely. And I think the other aspect of this, and we're basically out of time, so we can't delve too deeply into this, but the uh, interrelation between surveillance and what is now, uh, you know, this proliferation of disinformation that we see all over the place as well, because as we saw with just as one example, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, Palantir's technology, which is this all-encompassing surveillance technology that is then translated into to political capital for certain interests, depending on what they want to do, how they want to target political messaging, how they want to manipulate the process and so forth. Now, without getting into all of the details, just because we don't have time, the, the reason I bring that up is because that sort of disinformation that we saw around Trump and Brexit and all of these other things, that wouldn't be possible without the tech that comes from these surveillance companies like Palantir and others. Yeah, ab absolutely. You you figure the ability to profile pe profile people to build specific news silos for whatever our demographic is to get people to click through. Uh, yeah, the areas of manipulation are are multiple, and we can expect more to come. The, uh, the book, thank you again, David, for coming and chatting with us. I don't know why I just stuttered as I tried to say it. The book, uh, The American Surveillance State, How the U.S. Spies on Dissent. Get yourselves a copy of that. David Price is a regular contributor at Counterpunch. He's a professor of anthropology at St. Martin's University in Washington. Follow him on social media, but not too closely. Don't surveil what he's doing. David, thank you again for chatting with us. Thanks, Eric. It was a pleasure. Listeners, thank you. As always, go over to Counterpunch, get your subscription. We'll talk again next time.